Number 40.
turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for three weeks now. This is the third week. And we have been looking at the details the last couple of weeks. And I don't want us in looking at the details to miss the larger argument that Paul is making. Again, I say that... uh, his original audience that he was writing to would have been familiar with all the Old Testament references that he was bringing up. We're not as familiar with them now, which is why we took the time to go back and look at them and understand why Paul would cite those particular examples. But I don't want you to miss the big overarching point. And the big overarching point is, even though we have freedom in Christ. He has already said back in chapter 6 that there is no law against him. Not everything is beneficial, not everything's helpful, but there's no law against him. So even though we have this magnificent freedom in Christ, even though we have freedom from the law, even though we have individual freedom, nevertheless, we ought to willingly curb our own freedoms For the good of other people. And Paul is going to return to that concept. That he expects Christians to be aware of how they affect other people. Here, let me give you a quick example. Have you ever run into a stranger? You're just out and about doing your thing. Maybe you're in a store, in a mall somewhere, or standing in line at the DMV. Maybe you're just out somewhere and you see somebody who is just unaware of their surroundings and the people around them. And either they're talking too loud or they're angle walking. That's a pet peeve of mine. I have peeves, I keep them as pets. And people who instead of walking straight, walk in an angle and cut you off while you're walking, that just frustrates me. Like, do you have no concept that I'm right here? And so anyway, this is what Paul is saying Christians need to do. Be aware of your effect on other people and be aware that if you're dealing with someone who has a weaker conscience, be aware so that you don't offend their conscience. Far too much of the egocentric world has the attitude of, I'll do whatever I want to do, and if you can't dig me, then that's your problem. You ought to just be able to recognize that I can be my own man and I'm going to do what I want to do. And how that affects you is just tough. But among Christians, Paul's going to bring it up again and say we have to be willing to curb our own freedom if it is offensive to the conscience of a weaker brother and be aware of how we affect other people. Have you ever had to deal with somebody who has no concept? Of how they affect other people? Thankless people? People who are... (laughs) You nodded way too quickly. You're already thinking of somebody. Just people who don't even care that they're offending other folks. Don't even care that they're hurting other people's conscience. And Paul expects that Christians would be better than that. So that's the overriding theme. But in the first part of the chapter, he's going to say... At the very place where we left off last week, at verse 12, he's going to say, therefore, my beloved, this is verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So whenever you see the word 
therefore you know that Paul is building an argument and then having built the argument he's able to say now based on that argument therefore be like this so the first part of the chapter has to do with building up the way we should act and then he can say therefore this is the really important thing flee from idolatry in Corinth there were many different temples to many different foreign gods Paul is going to say an idol is nothing an idol is the work of man's hands an idol doesn't count for anything but he's going to go even further this time and say that Gentiles who sacrifice to idols are actually sacrificing to demons and that we who name the name of Christ and who share in the body and the blood of Christ should not also share in the blood of demons so it's going to get real serious that we ought to keep God front and center God ought to be the only person who we worship God is the only entity in the whole universe who deserves worship and therefore our religion ought to be centered on him and him alone do you know the word theocentric it means God in the middle it means God is the center thing God is the most important thing in your life and in all that you do and in all that you think and all the work you do and all that you eat and all that you drink you should honor God first and foremost in all those things and that's how Paul will conclude the chapter so let's start at chapter 10 verse 1 we'll read up to the place where we left off and hopefully you can hear the argument building for I do not want you to be unaware brethren some of your translations will say ignorant I do not want you to be ignorant brethren he doesn't mean that in a negative way he means it in a positive way Gentiles coming out of foreign religions simply aren't going to understand everything about the Jewish Messiah so he needs to teach them because he doesn't want them to be genuinely ignorant of these things I don't want you to be unaware brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate of the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ nevertheless with most of them God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved and do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and they were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and they were destroyed by the destroyer now these things happened he's going to say it a second time these things happened to them as an example and they were written 
for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. We've mentioned often that Paul expected Jesus to be right back. He thought that he was living in that time that was the end of the age. And because of that, because of the imminent return of Christ, he says several things in a row. Since God was not well pleased with the Israelites, we can use them as an example. So don't be idolaters and don't act immorally and don't put God on trial and don't grumble and don't be complaining. And these things were all written down for our example. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. We ended right there last week, and I told you that was one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible because everybody goes through times of trials. Everybody goes through temptations and difficulties. And here Paul has said there's nothing that has overtaken you that isn't common to mankind. Human beings on the planet suffer. Human beings on the planet go through trials. If you're young enough, Aiden, if you're young enough that you haven't gone through any troubles or trials yet, just live a little longer. Because (laughs) 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 Because in this life, there's going to be struggles, there's going to be trials, but The reality is that God, if he is absolutely sovereign, if he is in the minutia, as we've seen over and over again, if he cares about the details, if he's able to call every star by name, if he knows the numbers of hairs on your head, as we read in the Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. If he's a God who cares about every bird and no sparrow can fall from the sky without him. If he's a God who clothes the grass and the flowers that Jesus pointed out, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as the lilies of the field, as beautiful as they are. If that's the God we're talking about, then this is also the God who is in the details and in the minutia of your struggles, of your trials, of your difficulties. And he doesn't take you through those trials and difficulties arbitrarily. He is not a God who gets a pleasure from seeing his people struggle. He has his people struggling because it is teaching them to lean on him, to depend on him, to have greater faith in him. And I've used this example so many times I can't count anymore. But the reality is we people don't get on our knees as often when things are good as we do when things are bad. When things go wrong, we're crying to God. We're on our face before God. We're praying to God. We're worshiping God. We're telling God, please do something. But when things are good, when everything's fine, well, that's not when we're praying earnestly. That's when we're more likely to think we did it, to think that we've got it all set. And so 
So Paul knows that. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to mankind. Nothing has ever happened to you that's never happened to anybody before. And God took them through it, and the promise is he'll take you through it. Because one of two things is going to happen to you when you're in the midst of a really bad trial. One of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to get better and get over it, or you're going to die. Those are the only two options. And either one of those is a good option for a Christian. If human beings have come against you to the degree where they're going to kill you, all they do is send you home. Or God will faithfully take you through the trial, bring you out the other side, and then you're going to be okay again. So either way, if you belong to God, you're going to be okay. And if you can keep that mindset, if you can keep that memory, that realization that God is in control and he is sovereign and he's taking you through this for a purpose, that will give you the ability to bear it. And that's what Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful. Even in the midst of your struggles and trials, God is faithful. And by the way, God is faithful even when you're not. Even in the midst of your trial when you say, this is too much. This is too much pain. I can't endure this anymore. And you hear yourself asking God questions or putting God on trial or saying, why me? Or thinking you deserve better. God is still faithful. He's still taking you through this for his purposes. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. God knows exactly what it would take to break you, and he knows exactly how much you can endure. I heard a preacher say years ago that based on that verse, and verses like, uh, as thy day, so shall thy strength be. And whatever your day requires, however much strength you need to get through that day, that's how much strength God will give you. So I heard a preacher say, when I wake up in the morning and I feel strong and I feel great, I get really scared because I figure God knows I need this much strength. Something's coming my way. He was happier when he would wake up and not feel particularly Energetic, he would think, oh good, I don't need much strength today. It's probably going to be an easy day. God knows exactly how much temptation he can take you through. He knows exactly how much trial you can endure. And he's faithful to make sure that your trial does not break you completely. It's not going to ultimately break your faith and it's not going to drive you away from God it's designed its purpose is to take you toward God and he's going to make sure that's what happens and again if he's sovereign if he's in charge if he's almighty if he's omniscient then he knows exactly what to do to get you to where he wants you to be I've used this phrase I'm reaching a point, an age, I've been up here long enough that everything I say, I seem to feel like I ought to say, I've said this before, but years ago, I heard a phrase that I really liked. 
I was going through my own struggle, my own trial. And it was awful. And it was Elder Ward who said to me, never forget that this is the process through which God is making you into the man you're going to become. I'll say it again. I see people thinking through that. Never forget that this is the process through which God is making you into the man you're going to become. And it turns out he was right, of course, because all these years later, I can look back on my worst trial, my biggest difficulty in life so far, and I can say I wouldn't have missed it for the world because it did make me into a better person because God was teaching me faithfulness in the midst of that because God is faithful. So because he's faithful, he will not allow you to be tried or tempted beyond what you are able, even when it feels like it, even when you hear yourself say, I can't take it. Well, you had enough strength to say, I can't take it. You're not dead yet. You're still working through it. And so Paul closes this sentence by saying, with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Because if you know the escape exists, if you know there's a way out, if you know that at the end of this you're either going to get better or go home, and either one's a good option, and if you know that God has provided the way of escape, that will give you confidence as you're enduring it. Paul wants his reading audience to know that God is faithful in all circumstances and that there's nothing taken you but such is common to man and therefore don't grumble and don't put God on trial. And don't complain, don't whine, recognize that this is the process. And God knows what he's doing. Now, we all say that right now. We're all nodding. We're all going, yeah, right, of course. Because we're the people who are actually here today because we were well enough to get up and get dressed, have a meal, go to church. And so it's easy for us to read that verse and think, yeah, I agree with that. But you need to know that before you go through your next trial. Because when you're in the midst of the trial, that won't help. You need to know it beforehand. Because when you're in the trial, you're just trying to endure it. You're just trying to get through it. But even as you're going through it, God remains faithful. You got it? All right, that takes us to the therefore in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, that's going to be the theme of the next portion of this chapter. And Paul's going to talk about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He's already talked about it back in chapter 6, and he's going to bring it up again because apparently this was a big controversy in Corinth. And so he has to keep addressing it and he's going to talk about three different situations in which people might eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. You might eat it in the temple of a foreign god, a foreign idol. You might find meat sacrificed to the idols in the marketplace. 
or you might be in somebody's home and they offer you meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And so he's going to address all three of these circumstances and talk about how we should, as I said earlier, how we should limit our own freedom for the sake of the weaker conscience. Starting at verse 15. I speak to you as wise men, you judge what I say. You've heard me say many, many times. There it is again, that phrase you've heard me say. Uh, you've heard me say many, many times, you know, a smart man would fill in the blank. A smart man would stop beating his head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. You know, a smart man would learn to do things God's way instead of, well, Paul's essentially saying that. I'm talking to you as smart people. I'm speaking to you as wise people. Think about what I'm telling you. Judge what I say. Now, in order to read verse 16, keep your finger there. Turn back to chapter 5. Because this is, again, thematic. Go back to chapter 5, verse 7. Paul has already said, clean out. Well, let's go back to verse 6. It's even better. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's making reference there to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Gentiles would know nothing about that. But to the Jews living in Corinth, this resonates with them. For 1,400 years, they've been keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread happens right on the back of Passover. Passover is the first day of Unleavened Bread. And it is also the day when they would clean all the leaven out of the camp of Israel. Leaven then becomes a type of sin. Get all the sin out of the camp. And then the week-long feast goes on. And the last day and the first day are a high day. And that's a feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here Paul, under the new covenant, after Jesus has died, buried, resurrected... He's again bringing up this concept of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because to his Jewish audience, he wants to show them the fulfillment of it. The, the substance that the shadow was casting. And yet, he continues to say, but keep the feast. Because the Feast of Passover was kept by the early church and simply became the Lord's Supper. And so Paul is going to say, keep the feast. In fact, coming right up in 1 Corinthians, he's even going to correct the way that they were taking the Lord's Supper, that they were doing that wrongly. But he never says, stop keeping the feast. Instead, he says, keep the feast, but change your focus. So here he has said, clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed so what he's saying is when Christ died as the sacrificial lamb he completed the typology of all those lambs and bulls before him who had always died especially the sacrificial paschal lambs that died on the day of Passover Christ is now your paschal lamb 
All those other lambs were sacrificed for sin. Christ was sacrificed one time for sin, the same way that they used to take the Paschal lamb and cut its neck so the blood would flow. The blood of Christ flowed, and it became the blood of the new covenant. And therefore, since he, as our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed, we are now unleavened. That type of sin is now taken away from us because Christ, our Passover lamb, died for us. So that's the fulfillment of the typology. But then in verse 8, instead of saying, therefore the feast is satisfied and fulfilled and don't worry about it anymore, instead he says, but let us therefore celebrate the feast. And then he says, not with the old leaven, not with the law, not by what Moses prescribed, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness both of which are sin. They are leaven that leavens the whole lump. But let us celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Go back to chapter 10. Because now he's going to bring up the cup of blessing. Now the cup of blessing, again, is a phrase that doesn't mean much to the Gentile audience, but it means a great deal to his Jewish audience. Because this was the cup that during the Passover each year, they would drink at the end of the supper. It's the cup that Jesus lifted and said, this is the cup of my blood. This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. So whenever they kept the Passover and kept it as the Lord's Supper, they would take a loaf of bread and the cup of blessing and they would see Christ in those symbols. And so Paul says, is not, this is verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Okay, so here's the concept. If you participate in the Passover meal, if you participate in the Lord's Supper, the communion, and you recognize the wine that you're drinking as the blood of Christ, then you are participating in the cup of blessing, which is the blood of Christ. And Paul's about to say, if you do drink the blood of Christ in the symbol of the wine, in the cup of blessing, how can you also drink the cup of demons? Paul says, is not the bread which we break, the loaf of bread that they would break and all share among each other, is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So when we drink the cup, when we eat the bread, we are sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. And if you're sharing, if you're taking part in the body and blood of Christ, how can you also take part in the body and blood of of something that symbolizes demonic activity. Christ has to be singularly your focus. So since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The one bread is the one body of Christ. We all partake of the one bread, therefore we are one body. We're one body. We celebrate Christ in the body and the blood of Christ, we participate in the communion, 
And then verse 18, he goes even further and says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice sharers in the altar? Okay, so the sacrifices that went on in the temple, the sacrifices especially that went on during the Passover, there were parts of the sacrifice that were put on the altar and that were burned. But there were parts of the sacrifice that were cooked and eaten by the priests and the Levites. And so they participated in the sharing of that altar. And so Paul says, now take that as an example, because since they were sharers in that altar, if you go into a heathen temple and you eat meat that was sacrificed to that idol in that temple, you're sharing in that altar. And how can you share in that altar and share in Christ? You get the argument? So what do I mean then? Verse 19. That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Obviously the answer is no. In the big picture he's saying, no, I realize that an idol's nothing and something sacrificed to an idol is nothing because there's no God behind it. There's no power behind it. We've been reading that here on Wednesday nights as we looked at the things that Habakkuk said, that he mocked people who would make an idol and then carry it around and then pretend it could speak and then yell at it to wake up because God mocked people who would worship the creations of their own hands. So Paul says in the big picture, I mean that a thing sacrificed to idols is nothing and that an idol is nothing. No, but... I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Okay, think about it for a moment. Where did you learn how to worship God, how to sacrifice to God, how to praise God? Where did you learn that? Well, you learned it from God. And if God has not taught you how to rightly worship him, if you're among the heathen, and you don't know how to rightly worship him? Again, I've said a thousand times, people have worship inbuilt into them. They want to worship. They desire to worship. They're going to worship something, whether that's a pop star or a sports star. or They're going to worship something. And if they worship an idol, where did they learn that? Well, they didn't learn it from God. And they didn't learn it from human beings. They learned it from demons. Devils and demons taught them to sacrifice and worship idols rather than the true God. So Paul could say that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now, here he's talking very specifically to the church at Corinth and saying that in Corinth, where there were all these idols and where there were all these temples, that he didn't want people to think they could mix and match. It's not good enough to come to the church and take the body and blood of Christ and then run out and worship a demon and eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols in the temple of idols. You can't do both. You can't mix and match. And I think that we can kind of apply that to a great many things today. You can't say, I'm of Christ, 
I'm part of the body of Christ. I consume the blood of Christ. I recognize that he's my Passover lamb and he's my way and truth and life so that I can get to God and then go out into the world and share in all the worldly stuff and all the demonic stuff. And I, I know so many folks who think, well, I'm a Christian and I'm a strong Christian. And because I'm a strong Christian, I can dip my toe into the waters of sin and debauchery. I'm strong enough for that. I can put up with that. So I can act kind of worldly because I, I have Christ covering me. But Paul makes it very clear here that you can't have both. You're either of the demons or you're of Christ, but you can't be both. No, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And if you go into a temple where there is an idol and they sacrifice to the idol and then the meat is available for you to eat, if you eat it with that knowledge, you know that meat was sacrificed to that idol and you're participating in your sharing in the altar of that idol. And you can't, according to Paul, do both. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he is, are we? No. <laughs> the answer would be no. Tom's the only one who got the right answer. The rest of you I'm very worried about. <laughs> Tom knew no. No, because remember he just said, don't try the Lord. Don't test the Lord. Don't put the Lord on trial. Here he's returning to that theme. You provoke the Lord to jealousy. Here, let's see if I can sort this out. Um, so Micah has a wife. Her name's April. Everybody, April, April, everybody. Okay. April has a ring on her finger because out of all the men on the whole planet, she decided to be married to that one. And I'm sorry for you. But, but she decided to marry Micah. Okay, And Micah decided out of all the women in the world, he was going to marry April. So if April's faithfulness to her husband was questioned, if April decided she kind of liked somebody else better, it doesn't even have to be somebody better. Let's say it's April liking somebody else as much as her husband. Her husband's response is to be jealous. Because that's his wife. You're my wife. I, I want you with me. I don't want you with that guy. I want you with me because I'm jealous over you. Okay, that's what Paul's talking about. You can so incite God that he becomes provoked to jealousy because you're his. You belong to him. And here you are sharing your affections with an idol with a different religion, with a different demon. 
And he's jealous of that. Now, Paul's second sentence is, you're not stronger than God, are you? Because if you belong to God and you think it's okay to provoke him to jealousy, he's going to bring you back to himself. And oftentimes he's going to do it the hard way. And then you get into that no temptation, no trial taken you, but such as is common to man. Look, when, when the rubber hits the proverbial road, when life gets really tough, are you going to pray to an idol to help you? You know, if you idolize, I'm going to pick something arbitrary here. If you idolize Christmas trees, are you going to pray to that Christmas tree to help you in the midst of your trial? No, you're going to pray to God. You're going to go running back to God. God, it's you. It's only you. It's all about you. I get it. It's you. I don't need my idol anymore. He knows you're going to do that. And he knows that it's the trial, the temptation, the difficulty that's going to bring you to that point. And so you're not stronger than him. He is going to bring you back to himself. And he is going to do it through uh, the difficulties that he brings into your life because you have provoked him to jealousy. Now, the only way that April can keep Micah from being jealous is devote herself to him. And then he feels confident. Same thing with God. I did not just make a one-for-one comparison between you and God, just so you know. Okay. Same thing with God. God knows that if you belong to him and if you love him and if you are devoted to him with singularity, well, then he doesn't have to be jealous because he's getting the rightful praise, the rightful worship. He's getting the centrality, that theocentricity in your mind and in your life. But if you think that you can love God and be devoted to God and something else, If you do belong to him, he's a jealous God, and he will make sure he brings you back to himself because he's faithful, but he's going to do it the hard way. And a smart person would avoid the hard way. Avoid the difficulty. Just devote yourself to God. So do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now hear what Paul is talking about in context again. He's talking about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple. He says, if you know that you are partaking of the body and blood of Christ, but then you go into an idol's temple and you eat the meat that you've seen sacrificed to that idol, you are now partaking of the altar of that idol and you're provoking God to jealousy. So bad idea, don't do it. And even if you think you've got the right or you've got the freedom or you've got the strength or you're so committed in your Christianity that you can play around on the edges of it, you're not stronger than he is. And he's a jealous God. So then verse 23, Paul says again, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Like for instance... It's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's going to say that in a minute because we know an idol's nothing. But it's not profitable to you to do it if you're in a situation like the temple of an idol 
because that's going to offend the conscience of people who trust you and it's going to give tacit approval to the people who are worshiping the idol and God's a jealous God and he's going to take you through the trials again and so it's not profitable to you he's not going to lose you and it's lawful but it's not good for you got it there's no law against us the Moses law done away with that's hard for people to get a hold of the Moses law, the Ten Commandments, all of that done away with in Christ. Nailed to his cross, taken out of the way. So Paul can keep saying over and over, there's no law against me. But just because there's no law against me doesn't mean that I shouldn't be careful about what I allow. Because sometimes what I allow is something that a good and a jealous God is going to have to correct. And that's painful. So it's not profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Okay, what does that word mean? What is, what is edification? I, I, yeah, to build up. To build up people in the faith. To teach them a greater understanding of the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then... You're sitting in an idol's temple somewhere, eating meat that obviously has been sacrificed to an idol. How does that edify the saints? That confuses the saints. That makes the saints have to figure out, how do I work this? How do I justify this? So not everything is good for the building up. Not everything is edificatious. Even if it's legal, it's not good. Okay, so now we know there's no law against us. Paul has said it many, many times. There's no law against us. Christ is our Passover, and we are unleavened. Our sin problem is taken care of. So now how many things can you think of that fall into the category of legal? And gee, I have no sin against me. It's all under the blood. How many things can you think of that if you were to do them aren't really helpful? aren't really edifying, aren't really beneficial. You can do them. Legally, you can do them. Look, I've raised two kids, and they've come to me and they've said, is it okay if I fill in the blank? And I always say to them, yeah, it's okay if you want to do it, but it's not a good idea. It's going to hurt. My mom tells the story all the time that, she taught all of us kids when we were little, don't touch that because it's hot. Right? And finally one day, I walked up to the stove and just planted my hand right on a hot burner. Just boom, because she had said don't. And I was rebellious enough to do it anyway. Burned like the Dickens, fried my hand. Okay, I was free to do it just wasn't a good idea there was pain involved in doing it but it was legal that I did it okay so that's in life what we have to face that that realization that we have freedom in Christ he is a perfect savior who saves perfectly he is our sin and guilt sacrifice who has completely and utterly paid for our sin debt we are unleavened we have no sin against us and it's hard for us to imagine that because we can think of our own shortfallings we can think of our own failures 
But in the court of God, the sacrifice of Christ is fully sufficient and there's nothing at all against us. And because the law is gone, there's nothing that is anomos. There's nothing against law. There's nothing that is not legal for us. But we have to be wise enough. We have to be discerning enough to know this isn't a good idea. Don't touch the cactus. Don't put your hand on a hot burner. Don't go places you shouldn't ought to be. If you used to have a problem with drinking, if you spent way too much time in your former life as a drinker, you know where the problem is. The problem's in the bar. The problem's in that aisle in the grocery store. Now, where the wine is. You know where the problem is. Just don't go there. Is it legal for you to drink? Yeah, it's legal. It's a bad idea. You understand? Okay, and Paul's going to get more specific as we go through what happens in the marketplace and in a person's home. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of your neighbor. So now what about meat that's been sacrificed to idols that's in the meat market? Eat anything that is sold in the meat market. Some of your translations will say in the shambles. Eat anything that's in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Okay, it's very specific. If you see meat in the market and you're hungry and you can afford the meat, he says, go ahead and buy the meat. But don't ask questions like, was this sacrifice to idols? Because if it was, now your conscience is going to have to figure out, is it okay if I eat this? But if you're hungry and it's just food, eat it. You understand? And don't ask questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake, not your conscience, your conscience before Christ may have great freedom. Your conscience before Christ could eat meat sacrificed to idols and think nothing of it. But if the person selling it to you informs you that this was meat sacrificed to idols, he says, then don't eat it for their sake. So even though you've got all this freedom, even though you've got this ability to allow and disallow whatever makes sense in your life, knowing full well that you're fine before God because of the fully sufficient sacrifice of Christ, nevertheless, in a circumstance where the other person's conscience might be offended by your freedom, curb your freedom. I don't know if I've told this example before, but... I knew a pastor years ago who said, uh, I don't go to movies. And in those days, I was kind of young and rebellious still. And I argued with him and I said, why not? I mean, why would you let your congregation keep you from going to movies? And he said, if I walk out of a movie that they are offended by, and they see me walking out of it unoffended, their conscience is going to be hurt while they have to figure out what the relationship is 
between me and them now. And that made all the sense in the world to me. And I said, well, midnight movies. You know? <laughs> Go late when no one's around. These days, just buy the DVD and watch it at home. Which I think is fine. If you've got the freedom to watch movies, then watch the movies. But if you know that your movie watching would offend somebody else, he was willing to just not do it. Just forego it. And that's how we ought to live in every aspect of our lives. Recognizing that we have the freedom, we have the fullness, Christ is sufficient, but also because we have that freedom, we also do have the freedom to say no. We have the freedom to say, I, I will keep my body buffeted. I will keep my body down and I won't act on every little thing that my body wants because the things I want may offend my brother, even if it's legal for me. So you may have the freedom, Paul's going to go on about, you may have the freedom to go home and eat anything. If somebody says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, that may mean nothing to you. That's why he said, if you buy meat in the shambles, don't even ask questions about it. Just buy it, take it home, and eat it, because you've got the freedom. In your own home, in your own environment, you've got the freedom. But what if somebody invites you to their house? That's the next thing he's going to bring up. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Now he's going to quote from the Psalms. For the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. An idol's nothing. God actually is. Everything in the universe belongs to him. Therefore, if he has given you some meat to eat, it belongs to the Lord. Be thankful and eat a steak. Be happy. But... Even though you know that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, if one of the unbelievers invites you, invites you to his house, and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. If he sets some food in front of you, you don't start with, hey, was this meat sacrificed to idols? Just eat whatever he puts in front of you. Oh, good, it's this. Eat up. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, it's just like in the marketplace, in the meat market. If you're sitting at somebody's home and they serve you food that they tell you is sacrificed to idols, he says, don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience sake. You might have the freedom. You could take that food home and eat it all day long. It's fine. But if they've taken the time to tell you this is meat sacrificed to idols, they're informing you so that you can make a wise decision about it. And the decision, according to Paul, ought to be no. Because I belong to God and I don't participate in the altar that belongs to an idol. I eat and drink the body and blood of Christ. Therefore, I cannot participate in the meat that belongs to demons. Because if they tell you this is meat sacrificed to an idol and then you eat it, 
their conscience is going to be offended because they know. Say that again. Absolutely, because the very fact that they even brought it up means that they have a conscience about it. And if you go ahead and eat it, you being somebody who is widely known as a Christian person who belongs to and participates in the body and blood of Christ, and they tell you this is sacrifice to, to idols, and then you eat it, you're giving tacit approval to them eating something that their conscience is offended by. So for sake of their conscience and for sake of the brother, the other person who has let you know that this meat was sacrificed, just don't eat it. Now, let's apply that to everything. Let's say uh, I'm out with a friend of mine. I know a friend. I have a friend. I have a friend. I have one friend. It's a sad story. I was born at a very early age. Then I had a friend. Anyway, I have a friend who believes that playing cards is sin. Well, over time, I have found out that in his family, there are people who have lost a lot of money playing cards and stuff. And so for him, playing cards is a sin. And so he'll never play cards. Okay, so I'm at my house one day. Jeff and Jennifer have come over, and they've brought a deck of cards. I'll pretend I don't own one. So they come over, we're playing cards. And this friend comes over. What should we do? Should we continue playing cards? Because, well, he's the weak one. We're the strong ones. We know it's not a sin. We're not gambling. It's all fine. Or should we realize that that man's conscience is offended and stop playing cards? In fact, As soon as he shows up in the driveway, I would put the cards away so that he doesn't come in and have the crisis of conscience of realizing the people that he trusted are participating in something that he considers a sin. And the minute he leaves, Jeff and Jennifer and I are breaking out the cards and the chips and we're playing again and we're going at it. (laughs) Suddenly we are gambling. I don't know what happened But there are just so many applications for this. There are so many things in our life that we have to recognize. What about you? You have to have empathy for the other person. And you, instead of saying, well, don't you have freedom in Christ? Buck up. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Come on, Jesus. No, instead you recognize that they, in their conscience, are weakened because of the particular things that have happened in their life, the things that they've gone through, and they hold these things as a commitment, even though they're not my commitment, even though they're not something that I'm strong-willed about. They are, and because they are, for their sake, I would never drag my friend to a card parlor. I would never try to offend his conscience to show off my freedom. But by myself, I got plenty of freedom. You understand? Does this make sense? Because that's Paul's argument. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. 
I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which I give thanks for? So what he's saying is, he's willing to curb his own behavior because the other person with the weak conscience, if he sees him eat the meat that he knows is sacrificed to idols, and the other person, being an unbeliever, knows that it's been sacrificed to idols, has said that it's been sacrificed to idols, Paul knows that he has the freedom, Paul knows that he has the thankfulness, but he knows that if he eats it, then the other person is going to be slandering Paul's reputation because he's in there eating meat, clearly known sacrifice to idols. He said, so anything that I eat, the, the earth is the Lord's, all the fullness thereof, anything that I allow and that I eat is fine. But why should somebody else be given the opportunity not only to have their conscience offended, but then to slander me for something that I know is okay, but I will limit myself for sake of their conscience and so that I'm not spoken ill of. For if I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So, here's the conclusion. Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The difference between the man who says, I have absolute freedom and I can do whatever I want and I don't care about offending other people. The difference between him and the person who curbs his own behavior is the person who is curbing his own behavior is glorifying God in the doing. The other who says, I've got freedom, I can do whatever I want, is glorifying himself. But the man who is willing to limit his own behavior for the sake of the conscience of others is glorifying God. So do this, verse 32, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things. Remember Paul earlier said, I'm all things to all men. When I'm among those who are under law, I'm like one under law. When I'm among those who have no law, I'm like one who has no law. Not that I have no law, I'm under the law of Christ. So I'm, I'm able among the Gentiles to be like the Gentiles. With the Jews, I'm like... I'm able to be like the Jews. I'm able to be all things to all men that I may win the more to Christ. Verse 33 says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they may be saved. So the reason that he acts the way he acts and curbs his own behavior is because ultimately he's hoping that they will be saved by Christ. And he doesn't want to get in the way. He doesn't want to be the reason that people say, well, I, I was attracted to that Christian thing, and then I met Paul. Have you met Paul? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he didn't want to be the reason, the cause, that stood between them and their Savior. He wanted to be whatever he had to be to advance the cause of Christ. And if that meant that he had to limit his own behavior, he was fine with that. 
Now, I will say that the first two verses of chapter 11 actually belong at the end of chapter 10. I don't agree with this particular chapter break. Because he just said, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. So be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Okay, so that becomes your inspiration. How much did Christ put up with to get to you? I know. You're shaking your head, Marilyn. I know. How much did Christ endure while he was on this planet so that you would be saved? How much does Christ put up with on a daily basis of your faithlessness and your rebellions and your unwillingness to just follow him wholly and completely? Well, if Christ's example is that he did what you most needed to be done, even when you didn't know you needed it to be done, if he was willing to limit his behavior, he's the Lord of glory. He sits at the right hand of God. Angels do his bidding. He's the one coming back with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and slaying all his enemies. He's the one who is complete and utterly in charge. And if he was willing, nevertheless, to let human beings put their hands on him, pluck out his beard and punch his face and scourge his back and nail him to a piece of wood, if he was willing to go through all of that, if that's your example, then is it too much for you to curb your behavior? Christ did for your sake. How much more should you do for the people who belong to the body of Christ? Jesus would have been well within his rights. He even said, don't you know that I can ask my father and he'll send legions of angels to come fight for me. He could have asked the father and he could have avoided everything he went through. But he humbled himself. He lowered himself for our sake. So then why is it too much to ask you to humble yourself, to lower yourself for your brethren's sake, for other people's sake? Christ is your example. So be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. That's where we're going to pick up next week. And we will start by talking about the very controversial subject of head coverings on women. And that should be enough to get you back here next week. Bring all your head covering advocate friends. And we'll talk about that. Now, let me throw one more theological thing at you, okay? Because we're here, and we're not going to be here at this place in 1 Corinthians anytime soon. Let me throw one more thing at you. Keep your finger right there and turn to the book of Galatians. Go to the very end of the book of Galatians. This has, this is my disclaimer, this has nothing to do with the lesson you just learned. This has nothing to do with any of that. This is just a theological thing I want to bring up so that you can get it clear in your own head. At the very end of the book of Galatians, look at verse 6, 16. Because there are 
whole websites devoted to this verse. Reams and reams of paper have been wasted on theological treatises about this verse. It says, and those who will walk by this rule, that's Paul saying circumcision's nothing, uncircumcision's nothing, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. We would agree. And peace and mercy upon the Israel of God. And after everything that Paul has written about Israel, and you know that here at GCA, we believe that God still has promises hanging out there to national Israel. The same people who Paul would write in Romans 11 and say, as touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So even Paul in the New Testament continues to talk about Israel nationally and the promises that God made in the Old Testament to national Israel so I contend, and it's written in my book, Is the Church Israel, I spend a lot of time on this verse because I believe that upon the Israel of God means, follow me, this is tough. The phrase on the Israel of God means on the Israel of God. I know, I know, it takes your breath away. And yet there are people who say that means the church. That means the church that belongs to God. That means the ones who, who are following after this way of circumcision or uncircumcision. Peace and mercy be upon them. But the Israel of God, why would Paul want a blessing on the Israel of God? And I believe it's because Paul is convinced that God still has promises concerning the Israel of God. But here is my proof that Paul knows the difference between the Israel of God and the church of God. Look at 1 Corinthians again, right at the end of chapter 10. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Paul knows how to say church of God, and he knows how to say assembly of God, and he knows how to say Israel of God. And if he had meant, in Galatians 6.16, if he had meant the church of God, He'd have said the church of God because he says church of God right here. But he did not use the word church in Galatians 6.16 because he wasn't talking about the church. He was talking about the Israel of God. You get that? Yes. I'm just throwing that in for free. That was just a free little theological nugget that people will light up my email about. And they will argue with me in all capital letters, and they will tell me that I'm wrong, that the Israel of God means the church of God. The only reason that I disagree with them and know for a fact that they're not right is that the church is something and Israel is something. Paul knows how to use both words, and had he meant something else, follow me here, he'd have said something else. But he said that. All right, so having said that, it's true that Christ is our Savior. He's our Passover. It's true that we're unleavened. It's true that he's a perfect Savior. And it's true that we take the body and the blood of Christ in the Passover, in the communion. And therefore, we do not participate 
in the altar of demons. We don't have idols, and we're willing to curb our behavior if our behavior is offensive to our brethren. That's the real lesson this morning. Okay, questions? What? Nothing? Really? Okay, if it's about April and her faithfulness, I can't, I can't answer that. That's something you're going to have. Okay, yes? Just a scenario in, based off of this passage that we just studied. If a Muslim family were to invite you over and say we're having a halal meal, that would be something we would have to say no to? Paul said, if the unbeliever invites you, and you choose to go. So you even have the freedom of conscience to decide whether you're going to go. But then, having exercised that freedom of conscience, it might be a good witness toward Christ that if they were to serve you a meal that they say is sacrificed in the name of Allah, you would say, well, then I can't participate because I'm here in the name of Christ. If you choose to go, but you have the right to choose not to go. You know. But if they say, just we're coming over, have a meal, and they never say anything, then yeah. fine. Right. If you've got a Muslim neighbor and they invite you over for lunch, for free, go. <laughs> have some lunch. Yeah. It's when they introduce religious aspects into it that you have to stand for what you believe. Make sense? That makes sense. Okay. Good question. Anything else? We're done? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.